You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine God's attribute of immutability, which means that he cannot change. Now, Dr. Spencer, last time we laid out a biblical case for this incommunicable attribute, but you said that you wanted to discuss some implications of it and objections to it. So how would you like to begin today? I first want to deal with a common misunderstanding of what it means for God to be unchangeable. I think Louis Burkhoff says it very well, so let me quote from his systematic theology. But before I do that, let me define a word that he uses. He mentions an anthropopathic way of speaking, and we need to know that an anthropopathism ascribes human emotions to a non-human subject, in this case, to God. With that definition in hand, let me read what Burkhoff wrote about God. Quote, There is change round about him, change in the relations of men to him, but there is no change in his being, his attributes, his purpose, his motives of action, or his promises. When Scripture speaks of his repenting, changing his intention, and altering his relation to sinners when they repent, we should remember that this is only an anthropopathic way of speaking. In reality, the change is not in God, but in man and in man's relations to God. I think it'd be good to point out that when Burkhoff says that Scripture speaks of God repenting, he's referring to the King James translation, where the word is used in the sense of changing your mind. There's never any suggestion that God had done something morally wrong. Of course not. That's unthinkable. Let me give a couple of examples of the passages he's referring to. In Exodus 32, verses 9 and 10, God tells Moses, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." But in verses 11 to 13, we read that Moses sought the Lord's favor on behalf of the Israelites. And then in verse 14, we read that, quote, The Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And where the translation you just read said, quote, The Lord relented, that's one of the places where the King James Version says that he repented. Yes, it is. But we need to think about this exchange for a minute. Did God really change his mind? To say that would be an unwarranted conclusion and would violate the first rule of hermeneutics, which we covered in session 39. Remember that that rule, which is also called the analogy of faith or the analogy of scripture, says that we must use scripture to interpret scripture, meaning that we should never pit one part of the word of God against another. Since the whole word of God is the infallible truth, we must understand every passage in a way that is consistent with the rest of scripture. The Word of God cannot contradict itself. And therefore, to understand this passage is teaching that God truly changed his mind would contradict what we're told, for example, in Numbers 23, verse 19, as we saw last time. Yes, it would contradict that passage and others as well. But it isn't that hard to see how to interpret this exchange between God and Moses. God was angry with his people and had determined beforehand, in fact, from all eternity, how he was going to deal with it. He told Moses that he was angry enough to destroy them, but that he would still make Moses into a great nation. He did this knowing that Moses would plead for the people in prayer, and also knowing that he would respond to Moses' prayer by showing mercy to his people. 
The whole passage redounds to the glory of God's great mercy. It is not at all necessary to say that God actually changed in any way, and so the first rule of hermeneutics prohibits us from doing so. And, of course, as you pointed out when we were discussing the first rule, we should even read things by human authors with the assumption that they have not contradicted themselves. Absolutely. That's the only fair way to read anything. Uh, Of course, with human authors, it is all too often the case that they have contradicted themselves. But that cannot happen with God, who is perfect in every way. And with regard to this specific example, the interpretation you gave is perfectly reasonable and even agrees with how human beings deal with each other on some occasions. That's right. Think about a father dealing with a child. When he does something wrong, the father gets angry and disciplines him. But if he then sincerely acknowledges that he did wrong and seeks his father's forgiveness, the father forgives and he's restored to a place of favor. The father doesn't change in any meaningful way during this whole process. He is being perfectly consistent in how he deals with the child. What changes is the child's status with the father. He goes from being in his father's favor to being out of favor, and then back into favor again. But these changes are predicated on the actions of the child, not on some change taking place in the father. In fact, quite the opposite is true. The father's behavior is entirely consistent and unchanging, but his attitude toward the child changes with the child's behavior. That is exactly what Burkhoff was referring to when he said that, quote, in reality, the change is not in God, but in man and in man's relations to God. Of course, there is an even larger issue here as well, namely how God's unchangeable sovereignty and the efficacy of Moses' prayer for his people can both be true at the same time. That is the same issue, and we must admit that there is mystery involved in trying to comprehend how God's sovereignty and man's free agency can both be true. I hope to get into that at a later date, but for now I think it's sufficient to point out that God ordains the means as well as the end. Okay, can you explain what you mean by that? I mean that God not only ordains what happens, he ordains the means by which it happens. So, for example, let's say that God has ordained to heal someone of a particular disease. Let's call this person Joe. It may well be that one of the means he has also ordained is that you and I should pray for Joe to be healed. God is not changing in any way when he then answers our prayers by healing Joe. But it is still reasonable to say that our prayers were efficacious in helping to bring about Joe's healing. That makes me think of Second Chronicles 7, verse 14, where God makes a great promise to his people. He says, quote, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That is a great promise, and it clearly states God's unchanging intention to change his external behavior based on our behavior. The Bible has many wonderful promises in it, along with some terrifying threats, and all of them are true. God does not change. If we do what he has threatened to punish, we will be punished. But if we sincerely repent and cry out for mercy, we will receive mercy. God does not change, but our status before God can change, just like the child's status with his father changed. By the way, saying that we will receive mercy when we repent doesn't necessarily mean that we will not suffer the consequences for our sins in this life. God does not promise to remove all temporal consequences. In fact, he warns us that our sins will have consequences. In Leviticus 26, verses 40 to 42, God says, But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, 
their treachery against me and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. That passage is frightening and should cause us to be very careful to not sin. But it is also comforting because it contains the same basic promise as Second Chronicles 7 verse 14, namely that God will remember his covenant and will remember the land, which means he'll deal with them favorably. That's right, and we must be careful to state clearly that when it says we will pay for our sin, it's not talking about atonement. Jesus Christ is the only one who can atone for our sin. This is speaking strictly about our circumstances in this life. In the ultimate sense, we can't pay for our sin, but our sins will be covered by the blood of Christ on the day of judgment. And we should certainly praise God for that unchangeable promise. Before we leave the topic of God's immutability, let me ask you about the modern view that's usually called process theology. This view states that God is constantly changing. According to this view, he is, for example, learning all the time because he doesn't know what I'm going to do until I actually do it. Well, that view is completely unbiblical. Wayne Grudem deals with it briefly in his Systematic Theology and points out that it is based on two false assumptions. First, they assume that for our lives to be meaningful in any way, it must be true that what we do can somehow change God. But that assumption has no biblical basis at all, and any real Christian for whom the Scriptures must be their ultimate authority will reject it. I would also add that that assumption doesn't really make sense anyway. If you take away the God of the Bible, who says that human life actually does have any significance? I agree with you completely. The second error that process theologians make is that they assume God must be changeable because change is somehow seen as an essential part of real existence. But as Grudem points out, the Bible emphatically denies this view. We read Psalm 102 verses 25 through 27 last time, and they bear a repeating. They say, quote, In the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Yeah, that does put the kibosh on the idea that God changes. It certainly does. We have to remember the point we made way back in session four, and have referred to a number of times since. Namely, that everyone has an ultimate standard for truth, either human reason, which is fallen, or God's propositional revelation, which is infallible and found in the Bible. The assumptions of process theology come from human reason, not the Bible, and they must be rejected because they contradict God's truth given to us in the Bible. Well, I think that's enough said about process theology. There is another question raised about God's immutability, at least implicitly, by the modern idea that the God of the New Testament is somehow kinder and gentler than the God of the Old Testament. That is a common view now. In fact, many self-professed Christians seem to think that the Old Testament has almost no applicability to us at all, other than being a source of ancient history. The reality is, however, that a careful reading of the Bible shows that God has not changed at all. There are, I think, three main things that have changed and which affect the life of a believer significantly. The first is that we have much greater revelation now. We've talked about the progressive nature of revelation before. The second is that Jesus Christ has come. Old Testament believers looked forward to the promised Messiah, 
and we look back on his historical appearance. The biggest significance of that change for believers, besides the increased revelation involved with it, is that the Old Testament ceremonial system was completely done away with. For example, we no longer perform animal sacrifices because Christ was the final, efficacious, once-for-all sacrifice that obtained eternal redemption, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 9. In addition, we no longer have just one temple. There is no longer a separate priesthood. We are all a royal priesthood, as we're told in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. All right. You said that there were three main changes. What's the third? The third thing that has changed is that we no longer live under the same civil government. God had given the Israelites a number of civil laws when they lived in a theocracy. And while those laws certainly reflect God's nature and how he wants us to live, we are no longer bound by them and the punishments prescribed by them. In fact, as Paul clearly tells us in Romans 13 verses 1 and 2, we are bound to keep the laws of the civil government in the place where we live so long as those laws do not tell us to sin and we would have to violate our civil laws to do some of the things commanded under the civil laws of the Jews in the Old Testament. Well, that's certainly true. Can you explain what these three significant changes in the lives of believers have to do with the question of whether or not the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament? At one level, they have nothing to do with it, since God is who he is. But the point I was preparing to make is that because of these three changes— Some people have jettisoned the Old Testament, thinking that it is no longer relevant. The truth is that God has not changed at all, and so the Old Testament is absolutely relevant today. We do consciously reject the ceremonial laws, which served the purpose of pointing forward to Christ and were abrogated when he came, but the principles they elucidated are still important. In a similar manner, we're not bound by the civil laws that were in place at that time, although they also inform us about what is important in God's sight. But the moral law, which the Old Testament summarizes by the Ten Commandments, is still every bit as applicable to Christians today as it was to believers in the Old Testament. And God is every bit as angry with sin and wrathful toward it today as he was during Old Testament times. And he was every bit as gracious in the Old Testament times as he is today. Those things have not changed. In fact, you pointed out at the end of session 54 that in Revelation 6, verse 16, the wrath of God is actually called the wrath of the Lamb. It is Jesus Christ himself who has prepared hell for the devil, his demons, and all who follow him. That's right. If you think that Jesus was always smiling and nice to everyone, you should read the New Testament all the way through, and it will disabuse you of that false idea. Just look at Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus calls the teachers of the law and Pharisees hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools, snakes, and vipers. He pronounces woes on them and asks in verse 33, how will you escape being condemned to hell? In Matthew 7 verse 23, he says how he will deal with false Christians. He says, quote, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, unquote. The Greek word translated here as evildoers is anomia, which literally means lawlessness. In other words, a person who does not keep the law. And the Old Testament moral law is referred to over and over again in the New Testament as being the law. There isn't some entirely new law presented in the New Testament, although Jesus did expansively interpret the moral law in his Sermon on the Mount. But never once did Jesus even hint, nor did any other New Testament author, that the moral law has been abrogated. 
So the conclusion is that God has not changed at all. That should be a great comfort to us as believers and a great warning to all who have not yet surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think this is a good place to stop for today. Let me remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org. And we look forward to hearing from you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the attributes of God. And we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.